goodness, I, I love you. I have missed you. And I want to say thank you so much for, um, oh, thank you, um, for praying for me. Um, I had a couple of kind of serious situations going on at, at once. One was my eye, which um, it, it seems to have turned the corner. It's, it's, not, it's not resolved. I, I, I want you to know I'm holding you to these 15 days, okay? Uh, no, I'm teasing, but uh, it, it's, it is getting better. It's headed in the right direction. Um, and I'm so thankful for that. I think it's in no small part to prayers. Also, um, with my heart issue, I, I, I was facing some, it looked like some troubling news, but that has seemed to have reversed as well. So I thank the Lord for that. Um, again, still have issues and would, and would appreciate prayer, but I, I cannot tell you how much it means to me um, for you to be praying the way you've been praying and your wonderful texts and emails. I'm, I'm sorry I'm not uh, able yet to return each and every one of them, but every one of them is read and, and cherished and, and I pray for you and, and cried over. So thank you so much. And, um, I just, I just want to say thank you for the way you have, you have, um, have loved on me. I remember when Paul wrote to the church in Asia minor, he had apparently an eye problem going on too. And this is what he said. He said, I bear witness that you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me. And I have felt that loved. I'm, I'm not asking for your eyes, but <laughs> I, I want you to know I feel that loved. And thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so very much. Um, I also, while we prepare to pray the Lord's Prayer, I, I also want to say thanks to all the staff and especially to uh, Pastor Corey for taking Palm Sunday. Um, um, and, and then he and Justin taking the, the midweek services, Monday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, Friday. Good Friday service is particularly difficult with all those kids waiting to get to the eggs. And um, uh, I told Corey, I said, I faked all of this just so you'd have to do the service. But uh, not true, but, I, but I, I put a thought in his mind now. He'll probably be on guard next year. But uh, Father, we love you and thank you. Let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? <clears throat> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I want to say to those of you that uh, this is your first Sunday back. Boy, it looks like we've got a full house over here. I haven't heard from Brown Chapel yet and all of you that are live streaming with us. We had two services today and the first service, I think I heard about 240 or so, something like that. We're, we're here for the first service, so we're thankful. And uh, some of you with uh, the, the better weather and, and vaccines and everything, you're feeling more comfortable with coming back. Thank you for that. Um, you are a vital part of this church, whether you're able to be here or not. 
Uh, those of you that have not been here, again, you are loved, you are missed, you are prayed for. And um, we will, as we get a little further along, we'll be talking about our new schedule when we're ready for that. It won't be long, but it, it'll be just a few more weeks while we, we've got to work through volunteers and things like that. But today I want to talk to you, as you might have guessed, about Easter. But I want to talk to you about Easter from maybe a little different perspective. I have said, and I believe it is true, that the Lord has been moving not only our church, but a lot of churches, a lot of his people to a new place uh, in faith, a new place in expectation. I believe that what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord will turn to good. And I believe the greatest days of the church in America are just ahead. Now, it's not going to be because of our talent. It's not going to be because of our programming. It's not going to be because of the things that we may have fallen into the trap of believing over the past few years, but God is going to reclaim the glory of his house. God is going to rekindle the faith of his people. And the message today, <clears throat> you've, you've, if you don't listen, you might misunderstand my, my motivation. This is not a rebuke for a lower level of faith. This is my encouragement to let's believe everything God has for us. When we read the story, uh, the, the, the scripture says, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. Um, and and uh, b before they got that word, the angel said, he's not here. He's risen just as he said. I believe that God wants our faith to move from a, well, I believe, you know, I believe. I don't know why, but I believe. My mama and daddy told me to believe, so I believe. It, it, it's, he's wanting to move it to a, well, just like he said. It, it, it's an expectation of belief. Now, don't misunderstand me. Um, in the early days, the church of Jesus Christ had a faith that was their life core. They were, they counted it worthy. They counted, they counted themselves blessed to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they, they went to the uh, martyr's death gladly and willingly, not because they had a death wish, but because the truth of the resurrection had so impacted their life. And that's why he is risen indeed. He is risen just as he said. That was an emphasis. That was no longer a period um, it went from a question mark to a period to an exclamation point. And, um, but if we're not careful, I'm not saying this has happened to anyone in particular, but I do think this has happened to the church in general. Uh, those life core convictions can turn into maybe a little less. We might call it strong opinion. With the passing of time and the pressure of society, our strong opinion may even become a preference because we don't want to be offensive to anyone. <coughs> and if we're not careful, we'll end up with the greatest declaration of faith becoming nothing more than an opinion. I like what uh, Oswald Chambers, not, uh, uh, not Oswald Chambers, Oswald Smith did at the People's Church in Toronto one Easter. And I've told you this, but uh, it's, it just keeps becoming more and more alive to me. 
On an Easter Sunday, he took his Bible and methodically began to tear out page after page after page. The people were aghast that anyone would tear out pages from the holy book. And this is what he said. He said, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, this doesn't matter. If Jesus is not raised from the dead physically, nothing in this book matters. The doctrine doesn't matter. The miracles don't matter. God's promises don't matter. He said, nothing in this book matters and tearing out page after page. He said, if what we are teaching is not true, emphatically, completely, and without condition, then nothing in this book matters. But he held up the tattered remains of his Bible. But he said, those of you that have not settled that question, let me tell you this. If the story is true, then nothing but this book matters. Nothing but this book matters. Now, I, I want to tell you that um, I think we Christians, especially us modern, we modern Christians, uh, I think we are in danger of unintentionally aligning and connecting our faith with things that have nothing to do with faith. Uh, I was listening to a world-renowned uh, scientist, and um, I, I like the guy. I'm, I'm not here to pick on him. I don't even want to call his name because I don't want to put him in a bad light to you. But he has not been real friendly toward the gospel. He's not a vicious man, but he, there's no room for God in his life. Um, and I heard him say one time years ago, he said, the thing that troubles me with Christians is they say that the Bible is true whether you believe it or not. He said, I find that very offensive. I listened to him recently um, in an interview several years later, and this is what he said. He said, you've got to understand that science is true whether you believe it or not. Now, I, I think to be fair to him, I think he was trying to make a point contextually and was trying to use humor. Um, but, you know, something's happened for a man to say, faith uh, is, it, it, you don't force that on me and then turn and force science on us. And that's, probably, that's quite a heady claim coming from a field of, uh, of, of intellect that, is, that changes like autumn leaves. Um, I mean, science is a work in progress and I'm not anti-science. And I, when, when I go to my physician, I want him to tell me what the science is saying, but I don't, I mean, I don't want any blooding, uh, bloodletting or anything like that. Um, I, I thank God for modern science. Um, I, I, I think I still have my eye because of modern science. Uh, I think my heart is still beating because of modern science, but I don't need anything to supplement faith. And the church has got to get back to that point where, you know, I, I, I used to hear this in the world, but now I'm hearing it more and more in everything from SESL to seasoned saints to, to theological students and pastors. I hear this more and more. Oh yeah, I have faith, but I struggle with faith because I know too much or I've lived too long or I've seen too much. And I know what they're trying to say. They're not trying to say, I don't have faith. They're trying to say, you don't know what I know. So it's easy for you to have faith. You haven't lived through what I've lived through. If your parents had been like my parents, it'd be hard for you to have faith. You don't know what I have endured. 
so you don't understand. And loved ones, what has happened is that there's been a very subtle connecting of our faith to things around us. Now you say, well, I, I didn't realize I was doing that. Well, the problem isn't that we struggle. Do you know that Jesus does not worry if you struggle? He came to the man that had presented his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and they were unable to cast the demon out of the son. And Jesus said, Do you, uh, he, he said, all things are possible to the one that believes. And some of us would have just stopped right there. Well, I got to get more faith, got to get more faith, got to get more faith, got to get more faith. And we always need more faith. But you know, I think we're bad about hearing truth and then stopping. And the bad thing is that we hear half truth and we also stop. And Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes in this man. Jesus was getting, Jesus was not on a faith crusade to enrich faith in this man. He wanted to expose the heart of this man. And Jesus said, um, you know, all things are possible if you believe. And he said, this is the heart of the matter. Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. That's where Jesus was headed. And for those of you that are saying, well, I believe, you know, I believe in the resurrection, but, but my experience has taught me that it's not that easy or my circumstances or my intelligence or my intellect or whatever it is. You got to understand faith is not in a battle with logic. Faith is not in a battle with intelligence. Faith transcends all of these things, and the job of the child of God is to bring all of these things in subjection to faith. And, uh, and, and, but what happens is when something trips us up, we stop there. Now, Jesus saw something in that man's heart that he was trying to raise to the surface. This is what the man said, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. That was a lot more than just saying, eh, I kind of believe. I got 62.7% faith, you know, he was saying, Lord, there is, there is the issue of me raising this boy. Since he was a small child, the demons have driven him and thrown him into the water, thrown him into the fire. Lord, I believe or I wouldn't have come, but everything in my life is saying no to faith. Everything in my life is saying faith is good, but it doesn't work for me. And he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that is where Jesus went to work. The biggest battle is not you mustering more faith, although I'm always for more faith. Hear me on this, loved ones, this Easter. The biggest battle is for you bringing you to Jesus. Why do you think you know too much? Why do you think your experience means God won't work for you? Why do you think because there's trouble in your life? What makes you think that God has not been working in your life? And I believe that God is raising up a new level of faith, true, genuine, deep-rooted, deep-seated faith. And it doesn't ignore our battles, but it brings them to the battleground. See, if, if you have a problem, if, if, let me put it to you this way. If life has been so bad to you, and, and I know there's some people that this is true, that it's hard for you to have faith, don't deny faith. Bring that to Jesus. Say, Lord, this is why it's hard for me to trust a man. This is why it's hard for me to trust a woman. And quite frankly, Lord, this is why it's hard for me to trust you. 
My pastor tells me that you're a good, good father. Well, I remember what my father was like and he was anything but good, good. And, and the Lord wants us to understand that for our faith to grow, we must no longer stay where we have been. We must not let our intellect or our lack of intellect, we must not let our experience or our lack of experience paralyze us because we all know people, maybe we're them, where we have been paralyzed at the same level of faith for 30 years, for 40 years, for 50 years. And we're saying that's just the way life is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. God through the Holy Spirit is breathing faith into his people. And we're going to see a resurgence of faith. But it's not going to be signs and wonders that you pay for for with special offerings. Or with special holy water that's just Dasani. God is going to shake the very core of our being so that when nothing around us wants to bear witness to the truth, something in us rises up. And that's true faith. I'm not saying there won't be games of faith. And I'm not saying there won't be charlatans. I'm not saying there won't be people that play those old mind games, you know. But But I will tell you this, we're going to see a resurgence of the faith that was true to the early church where we don't have to understand everything to have faith. And we don't have to erase what we have seen to have faith. And we don't have to just ignore our past to have faith. God wants you to know that his truth is greater than your truth. His redeeming experience is greater than your condemning experience. You see, whenever... Thomas and we say, well, yeah, but it was doubting Thomas. What do you expect from him? God bless him. We, we pick on that poor man because of the, of his week after Easter experience. That's what happens when you're down. You don't come to church. You miss Jesus showing up. (laughs) He wasn't there. And they said, we've seen the Lord. And he, Thomas says, unless I put my fingers in the prints of the nail and my side, I mean, my, my hand into the wound of his side, I will not believe. You know what he did? You know what he was saying? Listen, basically what he was saying is what modern Christians do. Unless I can see empirical evidence, I will not believe. Our churches are full of people that if God would just speak to me, I could believe. No, you'd say it thundered. If God would just do this, I would believe. No, it, it's, if it was as simple as that, God would just go around performing miracles all the time. But that's never a key to faith. In fact, we see that in the Gospels whenever Jesus was performing miracles and healing the sick and feeding the multitudes. They were ready to follow him all the time. But when he chose a different path, they began to leave him like rats off a sinking ship. You see, Jesus knows what's in our heart and he knows what real faith looks like. So Thomas does see Jesus and Jesus, you know, Jesus is so eager for us to have faith. He's not mad at us for not having faith. If that was the case, he'd be pouting with all of us. But he he said, Thomas, I want you to have faith. Here are my hands. Here's my side. Put your hands in the print. Put your hands in the wound. And this is what he said. And stop being faithless, 
but be believing. And he says, here, here. And you think, wow, what an opportunity. What if God said, yeah, everything you've asked for, I'll do it. If that's what it takes, I'll do it. But Thomas graduated in that moment. You know what he did? He saw his opportunity and there's no indication in scripture that he did anything except bow and say, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Jesus did not present the evidence and that convinced Thomas. Jesus came to Thomas and Thomas's heart believed that's the nature. That's the nature of it. And what I want to make by way of proposition to you today is this. True faith is not in what you can prove by science or experimentation or intellect. True faith is that it's just as real. In fact, it's more real. But it's something that defies the parameters of logic. It's something that you can know, but you cannot touch. I remember in the movie, uh, Patriot games, um, it was one of my, one of my, uh, uh old, uh, Jack Ryan movies. I, I like to watch and I don't watch all of them. Um, but, uh, I, I love that movie. And there's one place in there where they think they found the bad guy and the, the CIA and it's all of its sophistication has says, this is the best we know. The best we know, this is the man we're after. They're looking at him from, uh, you know, a satellite image. And Jack, Jack Ryan says, because they're about to take out this whole camp. Jack Ryan says, and no, I'm not ruining the movie. Uh, Jack Ryan says, are, are we sure? And the director of the CIA says, uh, are we sure of anything? You know, I thought that's a good answer. Are we sure of anything? And Jack Ryan looks at him and says, the love of my daughter, the love of my daughter, my little girl's love. You know what Jack Ryan, I don't think he was trying to make a theological point, but what Harrison Ford was saying when he, when he said that line is he said, there are some things that are beyond machines and some things that are beyond the best calculations, some things that are beyond whatever we can measure. He says, the love of my little girl transcends all of your technique and all of your machinery. And that was perhaps a crude way of expressing it, but faith transcends whatever instrumentation can tell us. True faith transcends whatever reports indicate. And that's what God is after in our lives. Now let's look at this. There's, with that being said, I believe I really believe that uh, in, in an age where a lot of Christians are saying they've moved from that life core belief that I'll die for to it's a strong opinion to, well, it's my preference, so well, it's an option. I think we have to return to some absolutely non-negotiables. And the reason our faith seems so weak and the reason many churches are not getting the job done is they have tried to build a kingdom off things that are not absolute. They've tried to say Christianity works if you sort of believe. They're trying to say that Christianity works if you are a cosmopolitan, you're a part of this. And we treat Christianity like the Rotary Club. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian uh, on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. Or I'm a Christian in regard to this. 
You know, I have people tell me, well, there's two driving forces in my life and it's, it's religion and this or religion and that or religion and the other. And I, I know what they're, they're trying to say. I, I think they're trying to say that these are the two biggest interests in my life. But what we need to understand is that Jesus is not first on the list. Jesus is the list. And everything is subservient to him. You say, well, I, that's kind of narrow, isn't it? Yeah. That's why he said narrow is the way, you know. Um, uh, and, you know, you, you think about the seed that was scattered. And when he told the parable of the soil, we call it the parable of the sower, but it was really about the soil. And, and what we find out, I, I know we can take parables too far, and I'm not sure that this is what that parable was saying, but it's interesting when Jesus was talking about faith taking root and producing, it was only 25% of those that heard that took root and produced. Some were worried by fear and anxiety and the what ifs. Uh, some, the enemy swooped it up before it even had time to take root at all. Some of the seed had such shallow roots that when difficulty or persecution came, um, they, they just, they lost faith and walked away. Jesus said, you need to be on guard. I'm not trying to say that only 25% of people that come to the Lord are going to follow through. I'm not saying that. The point I'm trying to make is this. It's not as automatic as you might think it might be. Let me put it that way. I know we're in his care and I know we're going to heaven, but I'm not talking about going to heaven. I'm talking about bearing the fruit that he wants us to bear. And, and relatively few people do that. And I think it's because whenever we have an obstacle to faith, we stop or we change course. You know, river will do that. River will come to a rock. If it's a strong enough rock, a uh, river, Give it enough time, it'll even move that rock. But if it's not strong enough, it'll just detour and take another course. And that's why rivers meander is because when they come against something, they say, well, we better go this way. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in the world of rivers. But in the world of Christianity, loved ones, we have got to stop treating Christianity as one of the best things in our life. And we've got to let it go back to what it was. Now in Matthew 28, the angel said to the women, they went to the grave, they were looking for Jesus to further prepare his body. Do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here for he has risen just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now listen to what Paul says about, and this is 30 years later, roughly 30 years later, uh, almost 30 years later that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. We're there. See the first generation of Christians are beginning to die and they're having some of the same concerns they had in Thessalonica. You know, we've been waiting for the return of the Lord but people are dying and we're putting them in the grave. Do we still look for the return of the Lord? Do we still look for resurrection? This is what Paul said. Now, if Paul had been like some pastors today, he would have said, well, if there is no resurrection, at least we gave it our best effort. If there is no resurrection, at least we get points for being sincere. You know, as I've told you, like my friend Terry Wasden and I, just, when we were moving to go to seminary in, in Missouri, we had never been that way before. And, 
we had been driving and driving, driving, and it was like it was, it was like it was a three year trek to get there. It was so long. And, um, he was in one car, I was in the other. That's when everybody had CBs. And, um, he said, are we going the right way? And I, and I said, well, let me look. And I kind of looked at the map and I looked at some signs and I said, well, I've got good news and bad news. He said, what's the bad news? I said, we're going in the opposite direction. We need to be going. He said, what's the good news? I, I said, we're making incredible time. We're, you know, we're, we're making incredible time. But Paul put all of his eggs in this basket of resurrection. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. So listen, he says, look, this is true emphatically. This is true indeed. This is true without qualification. This is true without making it an allegory. <laughs> you know, some say that Jesus was in such pain, he just passed out and they thought he was dead. And then his disciples got him and he revived and they called that coming back from the dead. No, he was dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, think of the, think of the person dying with an incurable disease. Think of those that are starving to death. Think of the children that are living in poverty and abuse. He says, you are more pitiful than any of those groups if you believe in something that's not totally true. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, let me give you those four non-negotiables. I believe that a Christian who is a Christian, according to scripture, has to believe these four things. Now, I don't mean that we have to be perfect in the way we believe everything. None of us are perfect in, in the way that we believe everything probably, but you have to have some foundational things in place. Now, what we're going to talk about in, in just a little bit of time that we've got, um, to honor the Lord on Easter. The four things that are, that are non-negotiable is I need a savior. I need a savior. I remember a talk show host decades ago, and he was really upset with a politician who had been uh, talked about a song. Um, the, the song is at the cross, you know, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And there's a phrase in that song, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And the talk show host got so upset. He said, I wouldn't serve a God that called me a worm. I wouldn't attend a church that called people worms. I wouldn't listen to a preacher that said mankind was worms. And the crowd's applauding and they're shaming this Christian celebrity. There's only one problem is we're worms. You see, the, the scientist that I talked about, he said, the reason I have trouble believing in God, he said, is if God created everything, we're in a cosmos that tries to kill us. 
the whole cosmos is trying to kill us. And I, I agreed with him, but what he doesn't understand with all of his intellect, he doesn't understand basic theology. This is not the way the, the, the Lord created the cosmos. This is what our sin did to the cosmos. See, if you don't understand basic Christianity, you're going to draw these wrong conclusions over and over and over again. And what my friend on television didn't understand is we have sinned and rebelled and we are worms. And the first thing I need to understand is that I need a savior. I need a savior. Now the Holy Spirit, we can't just go out and tell people they need a savior. They'll say, why? And every one of our neighbors can find somebody that they're living better than they are. You know, they're living better than that neighbor. <clears throat> On a sliding scale, we probably all think we deserve to go to heaven. But something is broken. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. We've all gone astray. You say, oh, what about a little newborn baby? Is that baby gone astray? We believe, and it's, it's probably a 20, 25 minute explanation to, to solidify why. We believe in what's called the innocence of the soul. We believe that babies or people that maybe never reach a certain uh, intellectual capacity, if, so, if, if someone is not reached in what we call an age of accountability or someone is unable to reach the age of accountability, we believe the church is always taught, and I believe the scripture confirms, we, those, those little ones are held in innocence. They're, they're held in innocence. But the day will come if development is normal the day has come where even that precious little grandchild of yours, I can't believe it, but it's true. Even that little grandchild of, you, of yours that is the perfect grandchild, at some point that little fellow, that little gal has got to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, we need a savior. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3, 22 and 23 says, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Now there are four foundations of faith. This is what the gospel is built upon. The foundation of the gospel is built upon this. And then we're going to talk just for 60 seconds about the specifics of the gospel. There are four foundations. Like this chair here has four legs. I sit on this chair and I rest on it and I realize it could break, but every analogy breaks down, but not in the spiritual realm. Our faith rests on four foundational legs. Here's number one. God is the loving creator and I am the apex of his creation. I did not evolve from something, although God can use evolution in some settings. God can do it any way he wants to do it, but we believe that we were the special creation of God. There's a special, when you lose sight of being the special creation of God, then euthanasia doesn't matter. Uh, any, any, you know, and, and abortion doesn't matter if we're just a freak of nature. But if we are the 
apex of God's creation, the way we treat each other makes all the difference in the world. And the way we view life makes all the difference in the world. So God's the loving creator and I am the apex of his creation. But number two, I fell into depravity through willful rebellion against God. This is called sin. It began with Adam. It began with Eve. You say, well, I didn't do it. They did it. Yeah, but he is what Paul calls in Romans. He is the head of the race. Theologians used to call him the federal head of the race. In other words, as the first man and the first woman, what Adam and Eve did somehow, somehow, we don't understand the science of it because I, I don't think there is a science to it. We don't understand the spiritual dynamics of it fully. But his guilt affected us. Every one of us um, is affected by the sin of, our, of, of the first Adam. Now, on the good side, every one of us can go to heaven because of the righteousness of the last Adam, which is Jesus. You say, um, you know, that's hard to understand. Well, I, I understand that it's hard to understand, but bear with me and you'll understand. Um, we fell into depravity through willful rebellion. And that means that every one of us, as sweet as we were as a baby and sweet as we may still be, we were born in a state of depravity. Now we believe in total depravity, but unlike some Christian groups, we don't think that total depravity means that we cannot be saved. Neither do we think total depravity means that we're as bad as we can be. The worst of us, the worst of us, can be worse than we are. I mean, you say, well, what about Hitler killing all millions of people? Well, at least he was good to his dogs I mean, until he killed them. But um, even the worst of us have a tender side. Even the worst of us do something good. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity does not mean there's no chance of me being saved. Total depravity doesn't mean I'm the worst I can be or as bad as I can be. Total depravity, as I've taught you, means we're as bad off as we can be. There's absolutely nothing we can do that would warrant forgiveness. There's nothing we can do that will offset the evil nature. So we are totally depraved and, it, and we need the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ to cover our lives and to do something that nobody else can do. That's why the third part of this stool is that God sent Jesus to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. Okay? I'm the apex of his creation, this loving God, but I fell and ruined it beyond repair. Only God could repair it, so he sent Messiah. And here are the things we believe about Messiah that are non-negotiable. We believe that Jesus is God. He was not an ascended spirit master that is the best man that ever lived. Jesus is not one God among the other gods. Jesus is God. That's why, you know, when Thomas finally came to his senses, he recognized two truths. He says, you are my Lord and you are my God. That's why Jesus accepted worship when even angels won't accept worship. He's God. Acts chapter 20, Paul writing to the elders at Ephesus, he said, now you remember that God bought his church with his own blood. So he calls Jesus God. 
God bought the church with his own blood. God's blood bought the church. So Jesus was God and he came. He wasn't just the best man that ever was. He was fully God and fully man. It's one of the mysteries that our mind can never comprehend. He wasn't a blending. He wasn't a mixing. He was a unique standing of two natures, completely united, but completely apart from each other. And he was born of a virgin there was no will of man involved. There was no, there was no brokenness involved. Mary was a, was a, a, a vessel used to carry this spotless lamb. He was born of a virgin. And not only was he God born of a virgin, but he lived a sinless life. You say, boy, this is, this is hard to believe. Let me tell you, you're like one of my little boys in junior, uh, junior boys class I used to teach. We had a lesson about Jonah. And his mama said, what'd you learn in class with Brother Steve today? He said, oh, there was a prophet named Jonah that God sent him to preach to some mean people. He didn't want to go, but he went out in the wilderness and sat down, thought about it and said, they, the gospel is for everyone. I need to go and preach. And he preached and got saved. And the people got saved. And she looked at him and said, Gary, I don't believe that. And he looked at her and said, you'd never believe what he told me. He was trying to save himself, but he, he was born of a virgin. And then this is a greater miracle than the virgin birth. To me, he lived a sinless life. O over 30 years, w w the, the torrid teens and the tempting 20s, he never sinned. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He died on the cross for me and for you. And then he was physically raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And here's the fourth leg of the stool. Salvation, which means forgiveness and redemption, is given to those who repent and accept Jesus as payment for their sin. I need a savior. The loving God who created me as the apex of his creation, I sinned and fell, but he sent a redeemer. And if I receive the redeemer, I can be born again and I can have eternal life. Now here's the second thing that is a non-negotiable. I need a savior, but the second thing is the savior is Jesus. Not just any sacrifice will do. Um, and, and when you and I come to Jesus, we come so solely and totally on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive his righteousness and you say, well, it's not, it's not fair. <laughs> I mean, how can I come and receive eternal life without doing something? It's the same principle that Jesus having done nothing wrong, received all the guilt and shame of the world. He did not do anything to be guilty of it. He just received it. And when it comes to salvation, you and I don't do anything to earn it. We just receive it. Pastor Corey, will you come and, and be a, a, a young Jewish man bringing his lamb for sacrifice to the priest? He's carrying the lamb. And this is, you see, we forget this. When it was time for the sacrifice, the priest had one job only. He inspected the lamb. Every quarter of the lamb, the, turn it over, check the lamb's genitals and the lamb's belly. He would check the fur. He would check the, the lamb's eyes. He would check the lamb's teeth. You see, what we think the priest does is this. <laughs> see, we think 
that we get inspected. But heaven only looks for the quality of the lamb. It's not us. It's the lamb. Thank you, buddy. So we've got to understand just as there's nothing we can do. I mean, there's nothing Jesus did to, to contain our sin and bear our sin to the cross. There's nothing you and I can do to bear righteousness except receive it. He received our transgression. We receive his righteousness. Now the savior is Jesus. The book of Acts, there's no, there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. He, John wrote, so then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God uh, who sent me, Jesus said, have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins for they have already passed from death to life. Jesus is the only way. We do not teach a Christ among other gods. We teach that Jesus is the only propitiation, John would write, the only satisfying element that God accepted. So I need a savior. That savior is Jesus. But loved ones, we can't stop there. Jesus is alive. He is alive. The same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. We know from one of the other gospels that one of them was Jesus' uncle. I mean, Uncle Clopas. He, Jesus went to family reunion for years and this guy didn't, didn't recognize him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Uncle Cleopas replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who's not heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. I love when Jesus asks questions because he always knows the answer. <laughs> the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some of the women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. They said they had seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see. And sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. Then Jesus said, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in scriptures. They were clearly speaking from doubt and unbelief. They were going back home. If they had believed Jesus was raised from the dead, Jerusalem would be the place to be. But they were going back home. Wasn't it clearly predicted that Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? 
Then, oh, here's the greatest sermon ever preached. I'd give every dollar Glenn has to hear this message. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine the splendor of this message. And all we get is a statement that it happened. Listen to this. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time they were nearing Emmaus, and at the end of the journey, Jesus acted as if he were going along. Now that seven-mile walk would have taken a little better than two hours at a normal pace. We don't know exactly when Jesus joined to them. But man, I, to, to be the kind of preacher that people would listen to you for nearly two hours and want you to keep going. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it. Then he broke and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? as he talked with us along the road and explained the scriptures to us. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke... He showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. So he says, I've got to try another approach. Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now here is where our message pivots. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And he went on talking um, to them about the scriptures, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But that leads us to our fourth point. I need a savior. That's a non-negotiable. The savior is Jesus. There is no other, no other name given. We honor our Muslim friends. We honor our Hindu friends. We honor... Uh, the Sikhs, we honor every, you know, the Jewish friends, we honor them all and we extend our goodwill to them. We, we are not on a crusade to destroy them. But we do not believe any of them has the path of life. We don't, be, and we love them. And you say, well, I don't appreciate you telling me I don't have the path of life. None of us did. All of us were blind. And we're not seeing because we have superior intellect. We're not even blind because we have superior study. I mean, seeing because we have superior study skills. We see only because of the work of the Holy Spirit that opened the scriptures to us. Here's the last thing. Your mind and heart must be opened by truth to the Holy Spirit. See, that's why some of you can't get past what you know. 
You're a Christian, you're going to heaven, but you can't get past what you know. You think if you knew less, it'd be easier to have faith. Others of you think if I knew more, it'd be easier to have faith. If I could just see this miracle, it'd be easier to have faith. No, it's not a matter of what you know, what you don't know. It's not a matter of what you see or haven't seen. Faith is a matter of the Holy Spirit opening your heart to the truth of God. Faith is a result of the Holy Spirit working through Scripture. And the Spirit alone can convince us of truth. Listen to what Jesus said just before he died. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict. And that word convict means to convince beyond doubt. He will convince the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. You need to understand the world, all of us, apart from Jesus, think we understand what sin is. It's not what I do. It's what that guy does. We think we understand righteousness. Well, I'm not perfect, but my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's my righteousness. I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm not Benito Mussolini either. You know, I'm, I'm saying, and my good outweighs my bad. No, that's not righteousness. This is God's righteousness. Um, I, I've, I've preached this regularly, but I want to say it one more time. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. And, and that doesn't say our sin is as filthy rags. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. In, in other words, at the best I can possibly be, I'm still just filthy rags. Talking about wearing a robe of righteousness is filthy rags. And I don't mean to be crude, but those, those filthy rags were the Hebrew word that was used for burial cloths for the poor so that their body could, could begin to decay. And I don't mean to be crude or vulgar, but it was also used as a menstrual remedy for the women. They would use it during their men, uh, monthly cycle um, as, as part of their hygiene. Can you, can you imagine wearing a, a coat made out of that kind of com components or, or, the, or the, the material of a, of a decaying body? He said, that's the best you can look like before God. Our righteousness is as a filthy rag. But when we come to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we are given his robe of righteousness. We are given his robe of righteousness and he sees us like we just pointed out. He looks at the lamb, not at the lamb bringer. Okay. There must be, you know, and he says the, of coming judgment. He says that the, only the Holy Spirit can convince the world that there is a heaven and a hell. Um, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, I will show them how lost they are. I will show them the only way to be made right and I will convince them that heaven and hell are present realities and they must come to grips. You see, I can't convince someone of that. That's just a wives tale. That's just a myth in the eyes of the world until, until the Holy Spirit begins to shake a person's heart. The prince of preachers can't do that. The best laid out argument cannot do that. The most structured evangelistic approach cannot do that. At some point in time, the Holy Spirit must invade your life and change the way you think. 
Now, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us assurance. Now, he doesn't make everything resolved. He is the down payment. King James calls it the earnest. He is a portion given to us as a reminder that all the rest is coming. When you want to buy something, you put down a down payment. And what you're doing is you're showing your sincerity in buying this. I'll put down 20%, 30%, 40%, whatever it is. I'll put it down so that you'll know I'm serious about buying this. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, before he lived around us, he would come down upon us. But in these last days, he fills our life and he lives in us. And every time we get downhearted, every time we get despondent, every time we get in despair, we need to realize that God has given us a down payment saying it ain't over till the fat angel sings. It's not over yet. This is the promise that everything's going to work as it ought to work. Thomas, Thomas was satisfied with the down payment. He didn't need the miracle touch. Adrian Rogers, that great man of God, he's in heaven now, pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. You can still hear him on the radio and online. Had one of the most phenomenal ministries uh, that, that I've ever had the privilege of, of listening to regularly. And this is what Adrian Rogers said. He said, I had given my heart to, to the Lord as a, as a young boy. I, I think he was either in elementary school or middle school. I can't remember. <coughs> he said, but I was... He said, I just had such trouble, he said, with assurance. He said, I would think I was saved. He said, and then I thought, well, I did such a bad thing this week. He said, I was up and down, up and down, up and down. He said, I prayed for miracles. He said, I prayed for just something, Lord, to let me know that I'm saved. And this is what Adrian Rogers said. He said, after delivering my papers on my morning paper route, he said, I found an out of the way little patch of woods he said, and I ran my bike off into the woods and I got there as a young boy and I prayed and I said, Lord, if you created the heavens and the earth, if you were raised from the dead, if you did all these things, you are able to give me an assurance that I am going to heaven. I don't need a miracle. I don't need you to make the sun move backwards. I don't just give it to me in my heart that I know that I'm saved and that I'm going to heaven. He said, I prayed in that patch of woods until God, he said, I never saw anything. I never heard anything, but he said, something in my heart just clicked over. And he said, I've never doubted it from that day to this. I knew that I knew that I knew that I was going to heaven. Now, how does God do that? Well, first of all, he gives us an external witness and not just one, but the, a typical one is found in 1 John 3, 4, or three fourteen. I'm not sure. I think I've, I've got a typo there, obviously. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. I want to tell you, if you took people's testimony, you'd be surprised how many folks say, well, I didn't like the preacher, or I didn't like the church, or I didn't like this, that, or the other. But when I came to Jesus, I suddenly saw him in a new light and I began to love him. I know when I got saved, I, I, I was a, a school age boy, elementary age boy, and every one of my rivals, see, we were all on different basketball teams, different baseball teams. We lived in a different part of town. And every one of my rivals, I didn't like them. You know, I, it's, some I did, some I didn't like. 
But I, I, I noticed the first thing when I got saved, the first thing when I got up from the altar, I looked at my friends and I had this inexplicable thing in my heart for them. I wasn't sure what it was. And all of a sudden I realized I loved them. Now there were a couple I liked, <laughs> but I grew to love them. And, and, and there was one man in our church that was very demonstrative in his worship of the Lord. And for some reason he felt like he could worship more freely if he took his teeth out. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm not making fun of him. He was, he was a phenomenal man of God, but he just freaked us out. And, uh, <laughs> when I got saved and I was hugging my friends, I saw him coming toward me. And I was, I, I, it wasn't hatred. I was just afraid because I knew whenever he shouted, stuff went everywhere. <laughs> he got over toward me and put his arms around me and hugged, gave me a big old juicy kiss right here on the cheek. And I want to tell you, at that moment, every fear, every disgust, every whatever it was I had, I just wanted to hold him close. I loved that man because I'd passed from death to life. My pastor said when he got saved, I, I, I heard him say this later and it helped me understand what had happened. He was a carpenter and had been mistreated pay-wise by several men that were in the church where he gave his heart to the Lord. He said, when I gave my heart to Jesus, I got up. He said, I was surrounded by several people and three or four of them had cheated me. He said, but I found out as I went to each one and hugged them, all the bitterness left, all the anger left, all the distrust left. He said, I, I know that's just an external thing, but God can give us an external assurance. We love the brothers, but he doesn't just give us external assurance. He gives us an internal assurance. This is Romans eight sixteen. The spirit himself testifies King James says, beareth witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. That's what happened to Adrian Rogers in that little wooded area down in Florida when he was a little boy. The, the spirit of God put a witness in his heart that couldn't be taken away by the world. I love the way he used to put it. He said, when you get saved, God gives you something that the world can't give and the world can't take away. It's, you won't find it in Gray's anatomy, but there's a part of you. Every one of us has a part. I don't know exactly where it is, but it's called the knower. And you just know, you just know you have received the down payment and the spirit testifies. It's a present active participle. He's continually in the work of confirming and assuring that we are his children. We think we've got it down and then we'll begin to doubt and he'll come back with more assurance with more assurance, with more assurance. That's why we should never take the approach. Don't ever tell your wife, well, I love you. And if it changes, I'll tell you. Otherwise it just stands. You know, and, and this, this does not warm my heart, guys. I hear guys a lot of times say, well, my, my, I know my daddy loved me, but he never told me, but I knew it. And, and that's good. But I sometimes wonder if we're not compensating for our dad's failure. We need to hear that we are loved. Your children need to hear that we are loved. We had during a David Wilkerson crusade, a lady weeping and shaking uncontrollably. She said, my son has said to me the nicest thing I've ever heard. And I, I didn't know what I was, we always treated my mom like a queen. I thought, well, 
doesn't take much to make some people happy. But her son had never said, I love you, mom. He came home after the service the night before. And he put his arm around her like this and said, mom, you're all right. <laughs> that was his testimony of coming to Jesus. Mom, you're all right. And she said, it's the sweetest thing anybody ever told me. There's an eternal assurance where even though we are surrounded by all of this stuff, we know, we know that we've passed from death to life. But there's one more assurance you can have today, and it's the eternal. Now, we've got external, we've got internal, but there's eternal. Romans 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here is an ironclad statement, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And to seal it up even tighter, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now that doesn't mean you won't ever be embarrassed. I embarrass myself regularly. But when it says you will not be put to shame, it goes back to what Paul wrote to the Romans earlier he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That, that I, I don't believe that was Paul. This could have been a component of it, but I don't think Paul was saying, yeah, I'm proud of the message. I'm proud to be called a Christian. We know that was true. But when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, I think what was at the heart of that is I've never been put to shame by the gospel. It has never failed me. Every promise he has made he is kept. And loved ones, when we confess him as Lord, when we believe in our heart the full gospel, we are saved and that will never fail us. Heaven and earth may pass away, but his word will not pass away. So I need a savior. That savior is Jesus. Easter reminds us Jesus is alive but we need more than an intellectual assent. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. See, I feel for some of our college kids, for some of our high school kids, they're trying to fight the most intense spiritual battle with intellect. They're trying to fight with intellect. And there comes a time, you don't abandon intellect, but you make intellect bow to the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the day that we've had today for Easter. Thank you for both services and the celebration we've had here. Thank you for our loved ones that are still not able to be with us or maybe live out of town, but they've joined us today online. We thank you for them and we bless them in the name of the Lord. And Father, I pray for every one of us, starting with me, starting with me, help our faith to move out of the academic realm. Help our faith to move out of the conditional realm. Help our belief to move out of the uh, uh, humanly provable realm and help us to step up with a life-altering faith. Job expressed it best, though he slay me, though my whole world crumbles around me, I will trust him. I will trust him. Father, help us by the time we go to bed tonight, not because of anything we've done, 
but because of opening our heart to you. Help us to go to sleep tonight more convinced that Jesus is alive than we've ever been in our lives. More convinced that he will help us than we've ever been in our lives. We come to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Now, loved ones, look at me, and we're going to dismiss you because I know you didn't set the ham to cook long enough, and you've got to get home and finish. But if you are here and you know Jesus as Savior, or, or listening online, maybe you're over in Brown Chapel, you know Jesus as your Lord, but you'd say, Pastor, my faith, I, I know I'm saved. I love Jesus. I know I'm saved, but I have let too many things set my level of faith. I want you to know God is going to begin to give you opportunity to just stretch and reach and, and, and break beyond that. But if you are here or listening online and you'd say, I'm not even sure that Jesus is my Savior. I'm not positive, but I'd like to be. When we dismiss in just a moment, you can go to my right, your left. There are ministry teams out there that would love to give you information about following Jesus. They'd love to pray with you. Or if you need prayer for any other thing, maybe a prayer for a need, a sickness or what have you, they'll be there to pray for you. If you're not with us, there's a number on the screen that you can call. Somebody's ready right now to answer the phone to help you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus or to pray with you about whatever other need you have. Now, I do want to say one more thing. We don't do this every week, and, and I was afraid I'd forget it. But we also know that at Easter, there's a lot of searchers. And we, we're so glad. We, we're not down on searchers. We're not down on those that have questions. We all had questions. We all had questions. But we believe that Jesus is risen and we believe he's Savior. There's something we want to give you absolutely free if you're in that quest. Or maybe you're a young Christian. Uh, one is a book I've written and the other, and, and there's no charge. One is um, a, a, a CD, especially if you're in a battle for faith that I think will help you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step down and, and uh, kind of nurse my eye a little bit, but Justin's going to come and tell you how you can get that, okay? I love you. Merry, uh, Cersei, Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas and, and Happy Easter. Happy Easter.